Thank you, Deacon Young, for that prayer. Hey, I want to wish Living Hope, all of you, a happy one-year anniversary. Let's, uh, let's say it together. Happy one-year anniversary. What's the one year? Well, it's been a, a, almost precisely one year since we've been in a lockdown. Uh, and I know this because I have this in my office. This is the last time, March 8th, 2020, where we had all the kids at church. We had a full uh, program. And this reminds me of how much I miss the kids here. And the last time, um, and that was the last time we had really like a full church here, and on March 15th, almost exactly a year ago, we started streaming services. I, I, I don't know about you, but there, are a lot of, there have been a lot of losses at the church. There have been people who've been laid off or had their income greatly reduced. There have been people who've uh, struggled with, with sickness. Um, and there have been people who've lost family members. And, and, and there have been people who've lost just um, uh, the ability to do the things that they enjoy, whether it be going to college, uh, actually in the dorms, or playing sports or dance or whatever it may be. There have been a lot of losses. But, you know, one of the attitudes that is so prevalent in the American culture is this idea of counting our blessing. Counting our blessing. Count your blessings, we say. It's... Uh, the exercise, the idea of taking that which is good in our lives and focusing our attention there. So we say, well, uh, we've had a lot of COVID cases, but almost everyone that I know recovered. We've had about a dozen funerals, but listen, we had 16 births last year and early this year. Uh, we've had people who've been laid off or who've struggled financially, but hey, uh, most of the people are still working. They gave to the COVID fund and were, are helping those who are at loss. And the church financially, we're doing okay. Uh, people have uh, had difficulties in their marriages or relationships, but hey, look at all the people who've gotten engaged and some of them even gotten married this year during COVID. And so we're quick to count our blessings. And I think that's a good exercise, but today I want to ask you to do something. The, which may seem counterproductive, and it is this. Instead of counting your blessing, today, this time, I want you to count your losses. I want you to look back at this year and not look at the moments of joy, but recall the moments of your greatest sorrow. I want you to dwell not on your greatest gains, but your greatest losses. I don't want us to think of the positives, but what were the most difficult, anguishing, sorrowful, tear-filled times. And I will explain as we go on that oftentimes we're so quick to count our blessings and not count our losses. We don't stay in our sorrows long enough to allow our sorrows to do what it needs to do. We are in the series in the Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 12. We're going paragraph and paragraph, paragraph at a time. And today we're in chapter 12, verses 35 through four, uh, 43, three paragraphs. And the first paragraph, uh, Jesus is arguing about his identity 
In the second paragraph, he's talking about religious leaders and their hypocrisy. And the final third paragraph is talking about uh, the humility of the widow. And so turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 35. As a, a background, some of the smartest, influential, uh, powerful leaders have got, uh, got together with the purpose of destroying Jesus. They wanted to incriminate him and they wanted to uh, discredit him. They tried to corner him with really difficult questions, questions about taxes, questions about the resurrection. They're two of the most divisive uh, issues of the time, politics and the afterlife, politics and religion. But the problem was for them, the more they asked, instead of Jesus being incriminated and discredited, they themselves were becoming discredited and incriminated. And so they were left speechless, and verse 34, it says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, in verse 35, Jesus turns the table, and he begins to, he, he asks them a question. And I believe, um, when we look at it, it doesn't seem that profound, but I, I believe his line of reasoning here is extremely profound. Verse 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he, his son, and the great throng heard him gladly. So let me give you a quick uh, history lesson on the nation of Israel. Uh, David as you know, was the second king after Saul, and he was the greatest king that the nation of Israel had ever known, and, and he is still uh, revered in the nation of Israel. They believe, the Jews unanimously believe that in the future there will come a Messiah and they will call him the son of David. And the reason he is called, the expected Messiah is called the son of David is because they believe that the future king will be in the line of David, a descendant of David. Now, what is interesting is that after uh, uh, Saul, Saul um, David, and Solomon, there was a civil war, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had a series of different lines of kings. They kept killing each other. But the southern kingdom, um, uh, surprisingly, had one line of king and the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, this is the prophecy that was given to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There was no argument. The scribes, the scholars, the religious leaders all believe that one day God will send a son of David, a descendant of David who will be the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Kings uh, uh, for their people. Now, what Jesus does is he uh, quotes uh, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. This is the Psalm of David. And it is widely seen as a messianic psalm, meaning it was about the upcoming king. And David himself, in the Holy Spirit, it's not simply David's opinion or misspeaking, but in the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, 
uh, this is profound. We, we don't quite understand it, but this is how it's profound. He's trying to make two points here. And, uh, the, uh, David said, as he wrote, the Lord, Yahweh, and this is the, the Hebrew word that is used in the original Hebrew Psalms. The Yahweh, this is no doubt that it's talking about God, said to my Adonai, my Lord. And David, when he wrote in Psalm 110, he's talking about God said to the coming Messiah. Okay? Now, now Jesus makes the point. Now, in the Eastern culture, the person who is sitting at the highest seat the king's seat uh, would not call someone who is sitting in a lower seat or someone younger Lord. That term usually goes up, not down. And so when David wrote, my Lord said to uh, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, how could David talk about the, his future descendants and call him my Lord? It doesn't make sense. Not only that, what does it mean the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? That is a prized, revered position. It is sitting not only at the, uh, the second seat of God, but on the same level with God. If David is the most revered king, then the person who, whom, G, uh, whom David would call my Lord on the same level of God has to occupy a title or position greater than the king of Israel. And the only answer that makes sense is the son of David is none other than the son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the king of kings, has to be more than a human descendant of King David, but rather the Son of God himself. Listen, the religious leaders should have known if they studied the scripture uh, deeply enough and they thought they were smart, but Jesus in this quick conversation points out that they have blind spots if they're not as smart as they think. The crowd was so amused, it says that they heard him gladly. Now let's get to our two main points. Um, verses 38 through 40, and then the next paragraph, it's related, it may not seem like it, but it's related, the hypocrisy of the religious. Jesus goes after this one group, and he says, beware of the scribes. Now, the first thing that we notice as Jesus points out this one particular group is this. It's a group of people uh, not distinguished by their theology, or holiness or whatever, but it is a, a, a group distinguished by their competency, their profession. Scribes are like the scholars, the religious scholars of the time. Uh, the Pharisees had their scribes or their theologians, and the Sadducees had their scribes or theologians. And, and uh, when the scripture talks about the scribes, it talks about scribes from both camps, most likely uh, the, the kind of scribes that were interacting with Jesus is probably the, the theologians of the Pharisees. What we know about them is that they're competent individuals, especially in that culture. They were educated. They were like the professors, the Bible commentators, the PhDs of their eras. They were known for their knowledge, education, and academic standing. They had competency, success, and influence. And he goes further. 
He says that the scribes like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. They enjoy wearing these robes. And in Numbers chapter 15, verse 58, it talks, uh, the scripture talks about uh, them making tassels on the corners of the garment throughout their generation and put a cord of blue on the tassels of each corner. If you ever look at uh, pictures of Orthodox Jews praying on the uh, Eastern Wall, you'll, uh, you'll notice, uh, Western Wall, you'll notice that they're wearing prayer shawls with these little tassels at the end. Now, it says for these scribes that they like walking around with long robes. Uh, what apparently they did was they uh, lengthened the robes and lengthened the tassels. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, uh, it, Jesus says of the Pharisees, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture in, verses inside. They wear robe with extra long tassels. And it's as if they're walking around uh, with this costume saying, look how spiritual I am. It's, it's kind of like a Ph.D. person walking around with their graduation gown, saying, look how smart I am. And when they walk around, everyone, with the exception of maybe day laborers, uh, were expected to stand and greet them. And some of the greetings that we know that the rabbis were greeted by were, oh, great one, oh, knowledgeable one, oh, excellent one, oh, exalted teacher. In the synagogues, uh, they had the best seats. And I know at Living Hope, the best seats are normally sometimes in the in the back, you know, where you can hide a little bit. But in this particular culture, the best seats were in the front facing the audience. If, you ever grew, if you've grown up in the church, um, you've had sometimes churches that have pastors sitting in the front. I wouldn't want to sit here because you can see me get sleepy, right? But in this particular culture, that was a great seat. And look at me. And in feasts, they had places of honor. You know, though we have a difficult time, because in our culture today here in the, in the United States, uh, Christianity is, is not a, a culturally cool place, a cool thing. But in this particular culture, religion, being religious, was the cultural cool thing to be. And so these scribes dressed apart. The they were recognized and greeted when they were out in public. They were famous. Uh, they were spotlighted. Uh, they had like court-sized seats when they came into the synagogue to worship. And they could get exclusive um, uh, seating at these gatherings. You know what they were? They were like celebrity pastors of, that, of their era. They were just cool. And uh, I'm convinced if these religious scribes lived today, they would have a huge social media following. They would blog and, and have tags uh, by their names, and they would brand themselves in a way that we would be impressed by. But he explains to the crowd why we need to be aware of these celebrity scholars because they devour widows' homes. What a terrible thing to say about a group of people. They, they eat up uh, the assets of the widows. 
I don't think we can quite relate or understand how difficult life was for a widow. You know, being a woman it, uh, itself was a disadvantage in that particular culture. Uh, a widow did not have the social services that modern America does. We don't have the kind of uh, stigma that a widow would have experienced at that time. But these religious leaders, these scribes would come alongside of widows and saying, we need to help you, protect you, and counsel you, and they would take advantage, and they would suck up whatever little resources she may have had or the estate that she held on to. And the practice was so disturbing that Jesus said that they would, leave, uh, they would receive a greater condemnation. Not only did they devour widows' homes, but it said that they prayed uh, in a way that was to impress other people. Their prayers were long and eloquent, theologically correct, but insincere. It was uh, to show to other people how uh, spiritual, knowledgeable, impressive they are. In fact, Matt, uh, in, when Jesus was speaking to a group of leaders in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, and when you pray, he's talking to his disciples, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. By the way, sandwiched in between Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 is the Lord's Prayer. Let your prayers be simple and honest. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But these scribes, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, used religion in order to impress other people. You get the idea. They were religious. They were very religious. They knew it, and others knew it as well. I think if these religious scribes, Pharisees, lived today, they would be on social media chronicling what devotionals they had that morning. When, uh, when they do good work, they would make sure that someone follows them around, and, and they would be posting on inter, um, Instagram and the younger ones on TikTok of look what good did I did today. You know, there's a problem. There's a problem with being competent, successful, and influential as a person of faith. None of those things are bad, but the very things that the scribes were known for what they have became a hindrance to their spiritual spirituality. And oftentimes, those in our culture today, the celebrity pastors or celebrity Christians, oftentimes those very things that we believe are blessings, the giftedness, the success, the followings, the, the professions, the good looks, the, the talents, the resources, all blessings oftentimes can become a hindrance. A few years ago, a well-known, an extremely well-known televangelist asked his TV viewers to contribute $54 million 
because he needed a new private jet. When a reporter asks why he needs a new private jet or why he needs a private jet, period, he replied that, you know, he cannot fly uh, commercial because there are times when the Holy Spirit uh, prompts him to stand up and pray, but he can't during a commercial flight, so he needs a private jet. A, another pastor who was known in the media as the pastor to the stars because he had followings among the stars and among uh, star athletes. He got known in the media circles because someone took a, a picture of him wearing sneakers, shoes, that were valued at $5,000. My car is worth less than $5,000. I did not know that shoes can be worth more than $5,000. Nothing wrong if you have expensive shoes. If I've offended anyone here. Leaders who mismanage money, who funnel money into their own pockets somehow, or other pastors, and it, you know, it doesn't take too long uh, to search for failed pastors or pastor scandals, celebrity pastors, to know of the line of of pastors who fell because of immorality, financial impropriety, or power abuse, and oftentimes they leave their misery and disgrace only to come back and resurface in a different brand a couple of years later. I hate to say this, but oftentimes those who are gifted, those who are uh, successful, and those who are influential that those very things that we oftentimes consider blessings are the very things that become, can become a trap. For they believe that they deserve it, they've earned it, they're worth it, that they're above the law, they're above the rules, above everyone else. And I, I, I just want to make it clear that Solomon was wealthy, John the, baptized, uh, John the Baptist was uh, influential and Jesus was gifted. There's nothing wrong with those things, but there is a, a temptation that comes with it. And when Jesus is uh, speaking about the scholars, he said, beware of them because. Now we sh shift the scene in chapter uh, 12, verses 41 through 43, Jesus sitting opposite the treasury in the temple ground, and he was observing, it says, how the people were putting money into the treasury. There was a, 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 a series of 13 collection boxes uh, called the trumpets because they were shaped like a trumpet with a small opening and a, a wide base. And it says that many rich people were putting in large sums. They were coming in, and, and they had uh, coins, and either they can tell how much people were giving by the sound of the coin or the number of coins that were being dropped in, or there was a, a temple treasurer that was giving an account afterwards and, and reading aloud what people were giving. But the scene is this, that this particular time of the period, and, and if you remember, this is the Passover, so large numbers of people were there. They were coming and the spotlight was on the rich. They were coming and dropping large G's into the can. All attention was uh, 
on the big givers. You know, uh, we kind of have an unspoken uh, policy at Living Hope, and it is this, that uh, pastoral staff members are not allowed to look at individual giving records. I know some of you are, Phew. others have gone, oh, what? They, you know. But, and I want to make it clear is that it's not a biblical thing. There are many good churches with godly pastors that do look at, uh, where the pastors look at giving records and they do it for different reasons. But for some, just living hope just doesn't do it. Okay? But I'm going to be really honest here. I'm just going to confess something. I don't know how much any of you give, but if Elon um, Musk started coming to our church, he goes through a membership and I'm teaching on tithing, I'm gonna be pretty clear on that particular teaching issue. And, and after he becomes a member, I can't look at what any individual member gives, but I'm gonna kinda of check the offering record to see if there was a big bump. You know, it's just in, it, it, it's in our nature to give spotlight to those who uh, are competent, successful, and in, influential, and can, who can give a lot of whatever that they have. But Jesus turns his attention not to the rich, but to another individual, and it is a widow. In contrast to the scribes who were highlighted and, and identified with their competency, their influence, and their success, the widow, for, for what they have, the widow is identified for what she does not have, her losses. What is a widow? Who is a widow? A widow is someone who used to be married but no longer because her husband passed away. That's her identity. We're not told her name. We're not told her about her occupation. We're not told about her nationality. We're not told, her about, uh, told, told about her, her giftedness or what she's accomplished in life, but her loss, she lost her husband. She's not a widower, a male who lost his wife, but a female who lost her husband. Two strikes. But she's not simply a widow, but there's an adjective uh, right before the term widow. It says she is a poor widow. She's not someone who was left a large estate by her ex-husband or by her parents. She doesn't have rich kids helping and supporting her. She's not a, 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 a career woman who was able to survive and thrive without her husband, but she, it says that she's a poor widow. The term poor in Greek uh, literally meant one who crouches and cowers. Someone who is so destitute, so poor, that they're, they're like crouching as a beggar would in shame. She's not someone simply in the lower tier of the income bracket, but she is a pauper. But this widow, it says, this poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which amount to a, a cent, one penny. There was a period of time in America that we used to have uh, coins that were less than a penny. 
she comes and she puts uh, the two of the smallest denomination that existed, two of these little copper coins which amounted to one cent. Like I said, I, I don't know how they counted. Maybe they were listening in. They heard the sound of tin. I go, okay, that's, that's nothing. After a parade of rich people giving to the capital campaign, he was this poor widow who comes and gives two coins. It was unremarkable. As far as everyone else is concerned, but Jesus remarks on it. He calls the disciples together, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. He said, yeah, those who came by gave tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars in a big show during this particular Passover week. All that money, all that gifts, what this woman has done is greater Mathematically, he makes no sense, but he explains what he means. Because they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. They gave out of their surplus. They, they paid for all that they needed, their mortgage, their investment, their insurance, their cars, uh, their children's education, their dance lessons, their sporting uh, events, um, an upgrade in their kitchen, uh, savings, uh, whatever it is, and whatever surplus they had, they gave. But she, she gave a greater gift. Because she put in all that she had, she, before buying groceries, before paying for the utilities, before rent, before her uh, insurance and her 401k, whatever she could have spent her money on, she gave before that. Her gift was a sacrificial gift while the rich people gave out of their abundance, out of their margins. Now, now some commentators go so far to, to explain that when, he had, when Jesus had accused the scribes of devouring widows' home, that they guilted widows into giving the little they had, some commentators then say, look, this, that's exactly what the widow was doing here. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm very conflicted if a, if a widow who was down to her last few hundred dollars said, uh, Pastor Steve, can I give this to the church? And I, I would be very conflicted. I'd probably say no. No, you know, take care of your, yourself. But I think the point here is, is it's not the amount of the gift, but the heart behind the giver. It is not giving God the, uh, our, our abundance, our, 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 our margins, what we have left over, but it is giving to him out of affection, out of worship, the first of what we are and have. For those who have little time, giving time. For those who have little resources, saying, hey, I'm going to give this to the Lord first. It is a, a, an expression of extravagant love. The scholars had many blessings, but that became in some ways a hindrance. But this poor widow, she had losses. Nothing.
but somehow that allowed her to extravagantly trust and love the Lord. You know, I don't want to make all Christian leaders, the famous ones, sound bad. Tim Keller, one of, you know, a lot of evangelical heroes, recently wrote an article on The Atlantic. It's a secular media source about his pancreatic cancer. And he, he was very honest. He said, my wife Kathy and I spent much time in tears and disbelief. We were both turning 70 but felt strong, clear-minded, and capable of nearly all the things we have done for the past 50 years. I thought we'd feel a lot older when we got this, to this age. Kathy said, we had plenty of plans and lots of comforts, especially our children and grandchildren. We expected some illness to come and take us when we felt really old. But not now, not yet. This couldn't be what was God doing to us. And by the way, Tim Keller wrote books on doubt, suffering, and even death. But when suffering, loss, and pain hit him and his wife, he also was in disbelief. How could this be? You see, when we dwell on our blessings and we focus our attention on, on merely that which brings us joy and, and, and comfort, that sometimes that will become a hindrance to us seeking the transcendent God. Because we start believing that this life and health and prosperity is all there is to live for. But Tim Keller um, continues his uh, article and the journey that he and his wife Kathy, and I believe that till the day that he dies, he's going to wrestle with this. There will be a time that Tim Keller, now, if he doesn't succumb to cancer, he may, he, he may succumb to dementia or some other illness, and he'll wrestle with this loss. Toward the end of the article, he said, Since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we try to make heaven out of this world, the more we uh, grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. To our surprise, though, and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make the world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. The more we realize that Sorrow and emptiness and pain and brokenness is a part of this life, but this life is not all that we live for. Then we can look toward eternity and transcendence. So now let me ask you once again. This past year, instead of simply dwelling on your peaks and blessings, what was, what was one of, if not the most difficult Thing that you had to go through? What was that thing that pained you? What was it that was so indescribably difficult that perhaps your spouse doesn't even understand 
I am here to say that it is when we dwell in our losses that that opens our heart to the transcendent God more, that we're ready for the gospel more. So that is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed. But blessed are those who've lost their jobs and are struggling financially and wondering how they will pay their bills. Blessed are those who are, pain, are experiencing painful loss because of a loss of a loved one. Blessed are those who are struggling with chronic illness and are reminded that this body that they have is mere earthly tent. Blessed are those who are raising children alone and you never meant to do that. Blessed are those who ache to hold their own child but have been waiting and God seems silent. Blessed are those who feel broken inside. Blessed are those who feel utterly alone. Can I ask you to do something? Would you take a, a half a minute, a minute? Would your uh, heads bowed and eyes closed? And I'm going to ask the band to come up. As you look back on this year, can you take a minute to count your pain, count your losses, count your emptiness, and, and simply sit with your Lord? So Lord Jesus, I, we pray for the person on our right, person on our left. We pray for ourselves. We come not as those who are competent and successful or influential, but those who feel empty and broken and alone. We want to dwell in our losses to remind us that this world was meant, never meant to be heaven to remind us that, that we cannot fulfill all of the needs that we have, to remind us that we are broken and incomplete on our own, that we need a transcendent, loving God who would climb on that cross to give his life as a ransom for many, to make us whole and to make, to heal us, and to prepare a place for us. And so we thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.